Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is rarely longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. On April 17th, 1968, less than two weeks after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, the first computer museum conference was coming to a close at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This conference was hosted by the recently formed Museum Computer Network, and it had a hopeful descriptive title, a conference on computers and their potential application in museums. At the closing dinner, Metropolitan Museum of Art director Thomas P.F. Hoving acknowledged that for some these days have had an unsettling effect and that these machines are going to put us on our toes as never before. But he finished up his comments by summarizing, the whole idea of a computer network is generating momentum and is forcing upon museums the necessity of joining forces, pooling talents, individual resources, and strengths. When I tell students that there is a group that has been meeting annually since 1968 to discuss problems related to the use of computers in museums, I find that hard to believe. Seems like a long time ago. I guess it is a long time ago, but it is important, I think, to realize that museums were always on the cutting edge of trying to figure out how to use this technology. Maybe not everybody was on board, but there was always somebody who was pushing that story forward. This is Professor Paul Marty, whose work focuses on the interactions that take place between people, information, and technology. Hello, I'm Paul Marty, professor in the School of Information at Florida State University. Professor Marty, along with his colleague Kathy Jones, are collecting stories of the people behind the computers behind the museums as part of their Oral Histories of Museum Computing project. A selection of stories from the project will be published as a book. Hello, my name is Kathy Jones, and I'm the program director of the Museum Studies program at the Harvard Extension School. The key question that both Jones and Marty want to answer is how did we go from there to here? How did we go from a world where curators were saying there will never be a computer screen in our galleries to a world where when, the, when you're setting up a new exhibit, the first thing you ask is where should we put the iPads? How do we go from a world where we will never share digital images of our collection on the internet to a world where there are hundreds of millions of open access images in the public domain on the internet put there by museums? To answer that question, Jones and Marty looked to their own experiences going to the many museum computer conferences that came after, but both underscore how remarkably prescient that first meeting proved to be. That first Museum Computer Network meeting, I just want to emphasize the importance of meetings even that early and now of bringing new ideas to the fields. Everything evolved based on the technologies that we had at hand, and museums weren't the first to adopt something like a scanner or to do multimedia, but as soon as we saw the possibilities, we certainly began to do that. I actually just pulled up the table of contents for the conference proceedings from the very first Museum Computer Network conference, and there were a lot of papers in there predicting what the future of computers and museums were going to be, and of course, most of them were focused on inventory control and this, but there were also people talking about computer graphics and what that was like at the time. 
JCR Licklider, who's the founder of ARPANET, which is the original backbone of the internet, was there and spoke about the current state of computer graphics technology in the late 1960s. And he was predicting a world where there would be digital images of museum artifacts, where people could have an interactive art museum where you would use digital computer images of artifacts. And it took a while for us to get there, but it's wonderful that people were thinking that far ahead in the 1960s. Computers first entered museums as a form of inventory management. Edward F. Fry summarizes in his 1970 review of that first conference, the rapid increase in the size of museum collections in the United States has in fact reached such a point in many instances that a more efficient means of cataloging than that of the standard index card file has become a desperate necessity. Remember the final scene at the end of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So many of the Smithsonian warehouses look exactly like that. And, and it's really easy to see how things could get lost there for a very long period of time. You have more stuff than you have staff and time to, to deal with. The early inventory management systems were limited to only a few variables and a lot of manual work. As Kathy Jones learned when she started her career, at the Florida Department of State. When I got a job with the Department of State, I worked on a mainframe computer to be what they called the keeper of the Florida master site file. That was a large database that keeps track of all of the archaeological sites and historical properties in the state of Florida. It was a database called Griffos, and it was used by archaeological groups, the State Historic Preservation Office. There was nothing visual about it, not even images or things like that. It was hardly relational, and every field was just about 80 characters. I mean, this is so long ago, Ian, that we had to use punch cards to do the data entry and then have them read to a computer in batch form. Pretty archaic. Griffos stood for General Retrieval and Information Processor for Humanities-Oriented Studies. I can't get enough of the direct naming conventions of this early computer history. And it was actually published by the Museum Computer Network, the organization that hosted that first conference in 1968. So Griffos was the database system that ran on mainframe computers developed in the 1960s and disseminated by the Museum Computer Network. And part of the goal of the Museum Computer Network was to help museums learn how to use Griffos to organize information about their collections. Kathy, I don't know if you want to talk about what it was like at the conferences. It was the first attempt at standardizing information. And that was because we had limited fields and limited values. But it did lead to a profession-wide attempt to standardize how we describe all types of information. So not just the art world, but also the history world or the object world. The early systems for cataloging collections were rather rigid, which meant that the museum staff had to get inventive to bridge the shortcomings. This process would repeat itself. As the field changed so that we were looking at what the public needs were, we began to discuss early on where we would fit in the museum? What was our role now? Initially, it was a behind-the-scenes type of thing with registrars, museum registrars mainly, having to learn a new skill set, having to be somewhat digitally based and doing their job now with new technology. Then in the mid-1990s and later, we could add imaging to that set, 
and we had to learn about scanners and what they might do to the art or how we could use them safely and efficiently to process the image because we're a visual field. And then we got into multimedia and both in the gallery and online and another skill set emerged. You went from physically plugging in computers and wires to figuring out how to present information in a way that can be used by people inside the museum, then suddenly people realize, hey, there's people outside the museum that want this information as well. And then this can also become used in exhibits in the galleries and then eventually online. It's just been a constant process of the museum technology professional having to keep up with those changing technologies, keep up with the increasing demands that keep getting put on them, that they have to figure out how to use new technology to accomplish new goals. I think that this entire profession has evolved over the years in this way to tackle to tackle these problems because when museums started doing this there there wasn't you couldn't go to school for this there wasn't a job title for this Kathy talked about registrars you you really you were organizing the information on paper files behind the scenes and somebody said hey look we can do this better and faster if we start using a computer here and you're the one who had to figure out how to do it as museum technology professionals themselves Marthy and Jones realized that shining a light on this type of work would be a good basis for their next project. Kathy and I have worked together on a number of projects in the past. We published a book together back in 2008. We had been meaning to work together on another book for a long time. And we had been meeting regularly once a week or so and chatting about different project ideas. And I guess it was 2019 when we first started talking about an oral history project because, among other things, we were inspired by the 50th anniversary of the Museum Computer Network. And they had done some work trying to capture some voices from the field and some of that history there. And uh, we realized that there was a great need for that particular work work. We were also very interested in the question of how do we shine a light on the behind the scenes activities of museum technology workers? Most of the people who do this job, you don't see their work. You see the end product of their work. You see the database, you see the website. You don't see what they're doing behind the scenes. Like most information technology workers writ large, not only is your work invisible in the sense that if you see me working, I'm probably doing something wrong, but the system that you've built is also supposed to be invisible, right? It's supposed to be like plumbing. So it, it's difficult to work a job where if your work is visible, that means something has gone wrong. And, and so we were really trying to help both preserve the history and shine a light on that behind-the-scenes work that so many people don't see. When I'm not doing Museum Archipelago, I work as a computer programmer making interactive exhibits in museums. That should put me neatly into the category of museum technology professionals. But I have to admit that I made it to this point in the interview before realizing Marty and Jones include people like me. Maybe it's just a slight aversion to the term museum technology professional, which has the clunkiness of those direct naming conventions of early computer history. Maybe it's actually the perfect term. Marty and Jones invited about 120 professionals to participate in their oral history project compiling 54 oral histories from individuals whose careers focused on bringing technologies into museums. Listening to the stories in this collection, which feature some past guests on Museum Archipelago, I'm struck that the types of problems museum technology professionals solve mirror my own experience. Computers in tight places on the gallery floor that nobody realized needed to be manually rebooted every few days. Custom software running long after anyone who remembered what it was for left the museum. And the wire that isn't long enough to run from the exhibit to the server room. What we're doing 
also lends credibility to that invisible work and really does shine a light on it, bringing it out for the field. But also Paul and I both teach. So it brings it right to our students in a way that I think is important. I, in my museums and technology class, post podcasts for different topics so that my students can hear from Jane Alexander or other people in the field about what they're doing. And I mentioned Jane Alexander because she has been able to really raise the visibility of what she does from the server room to the boardroom. And I think it's so important to see that we can have a voice, that we could be, if not part of the C-suite, that we're getting pretty close to being there so that other people understand what it means to be digital in the museum world now and, and not take it for granted. We captured stories that people have never heard before. These were the people who were making the magic happen behind the scenes. And to get their perspective on that was just absolutely amazing. We didn't want to tell a chronological history of the field. That, that's been done. We are at center identifying the key historical themes and trends that cut across the past 60 years and really drove the field forward. And then telling that story using examples in the words of the very people who, who did that work. Which is remarkably similar to what Metropolitan Museum of Art director Thomas P.F. Hoving predicted back in 1968, that the only way to roll with the momentum that computers and museums generate is to get all the humans together sharing resources and expertise. After all, no museum is an island. One of the things that I think surprised me as we went through and got, gathered these stories and analyzed these stories was how positive and enthusiastic everybody was about the work that was done. Because, you know, in a technology profession, it's easy to be negative. It's easy to say, well, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. This is always a perennial problem, of course. But when you step back and you take the 30,000 foot view and you look at what's been done over the past 60 years, and I think we heard this from every one of our participants, when you look at that, it's amazing how far we've come. Yeah. And it's hard not to look at that scope and not come away with a positive perspective on what we've accomplished. And our hope with the book that we're writing is to convey that sense of enthusiasm to help inspire the next generation of people who are doing this technology work in museums. Ian, thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about something that we love. This has been Museum Archipelago. Museum Archipelago is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast. If you enjoy this show, if you find it a meaningful addition to your week, please support us by joining Club Archipelago. Once you join, you'll find dozens and dozens of bonus episodes, including hour-plus shows where special guests and I dive deep into museum movies and documentaries. You can join Club Archipelago today at jointhemuseum.club. For a full transcript of this episode, as well as show notes and links, visit museumarchipelago.com. Thanks for listening. And next time, bring a friend.